All right. Uh, my name is Mark, by the way. I don't know if I said that before. One of the pastors here. What, uh, what we're going to do this morning is sort of just relax. This is Christmas. Uh, you guys like, you enjoy Christmas? You guys really like the Christmas season? Is there any, do we have Scrooges or Grinches in the audience? Somebody that doesn't like Christmas? Jeff Steele in the back. You have a Santa hat on. Your wife probably made you put that on. But um, what we're going to do is, um, I, when, when my kids were little, every Christmas I had this plan. Because I wanted to be the good Christian dad. I wanted to teach my kids, you know, because the, the Bible says Christmas doesn't come from a store. Christmas, they thought, meant a little bit more. It's in the Bible. Look it up. So, anyway, I wanted to be this good Christian dad, and I wanted to teach my kids the true meaning of Christmas, and I didn't want them to think it was just about commercialization. And so every Christmas, we, we actually opened our presents on Christmas Eve because my wife's family is crazy. What they, my wife's family used to, uh, they, they got older and sort of stopped this, but when I date all the time dating her and in our early marriage, my wife's family would open their presents at three in the morning on Christmas morning. It was nuts. It was like 35-year-old grown kids getting out of bed at 2.30, and we had to drive to their, like, what is wrong with you people? So we would open our presents on Christmas Eve at our house, and I had this plan. Every single Christmas Eve, the kids, you know, got all the presents around the tree, and the kids came in, and they're excited, and everybody's in their pajamas and underwear. You know, at our house, we don't wear pants. So we're, and so I get my Bible out, and I want them, the kids to calmly sit and listen to me read the Christmas story. It never happened, ever. Huh? Oh, you didn't listen at all. You whined and complained, and they didn't never. So here's what we're going to do this morning. You can whine and complain if you want to, just like my children did. And I just, I had to beat them. It was horrible. Tie them up with duct tape. Listen to Jesus here. I want you to know, pay attention. So what I said is when we started Stonebrook, on Christmas, Christmas time, I want to read the Christmas story, and then I'll sort of get this out of my system to where you all will hear the true meaning of Christmas, okay? So here we go. Uh, Uncle Mark is going to read the Christmas story. But before we, before we start, I want to do uh, just this little quiz called uh, name, that Bible, name That Biblical Character. Are you right? I'm going to give you a phrase that describes a biblical character. I'm going to give you three of them. Wait till the very end so you can tell me if you can recognize who this biblical character is. Okay, here we go. This character was called the Lord of the World. Okay? It was, it was also called the Savior of all. Biblical character, character of the Bible. Or also the Son of God. Okay? I know it's not very hard. Lord of the world, Savior of all, Son of God. Who am I talking about? Jesus. No. Uh, Augustus Caesar. <laughs> Augustus Caesar was actually the son of a guy named Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar was the emperor of Rome. Upon Julius Caesar's death, he was venerated by the Roman Empire as a god. Therefore, his son Augustus, when he took power... Um, about the time when Jesus was born, he called himself, and he was called by others, he was even called the Prince of Peace, because through conquest, through conquest, through power, through the power of the sword, he had sort of unified the Roman Empire, and all the civil wars had, had ceased because he had taken the armies, and he had sort of extinguished all that, and peace had come to the Roman Empire, and he had taken upon him sort of a divinity title as the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, and the Savior of all. Now, in this backdrop, 
as we, as we read the Christmas story, you have to be very careful that you don't just read it from a traditional American standpoint. And it wasn't that sweet, that's the Christmas story. God is, is doing something amazing, and in the way that he do it, the way he does it, the way he does it, he's making a statement. He is, in the way that Jesus came, he is showing us the way that God himself does things and the way that he wants us to model after him. Now, uh, there is a... There is an Old, text, Old Testament text that uh, a guy named Micah, he was a prophet, pre- he made a prediction hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And, um, and you have to understand, at the time when Jesus was born, the, um, the Jewish people hadn't heard from God for 400 years. There had been 400 years of silence. If you read your Old Testament, the book of Malachi ends very hopeful telling the Jewish people that there's going to come a Messiah, there's going to come a Deliverer, and then for 400 years, God hangs up the phone and doesn't call back. He doesn't respond to his texts or emails. Nothing for 400 years. But hundreds and hundreds of years before, God had made this promise through this prophet named Micah, and it said this, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Ephrathah is actually the, sort of the general location. It'd be like saying Waynesville, Missouri. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, whose origins are from the distant past. So God has promised, and the people are sort of expecting, because it's about the time that the, the Old Testament prophets had predicted it would be a certain amount of time, and especially Daniel the prophet had, <coughs> had given a timeline when this Messiah, this deliverer, was supposed to come. And so they were expecting, but they hadn't heard from God. Maybe God had forgotten them. It was dark where they were. Israel had been uh, taken over, of course, by the Roman Empire. They're not living in a free nation. They're living in a very poor place. Things are not going good. It doesn't look like their God is doing anything for them. And in that setting, Luke tells us this is how the story began. Verse 1. At that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, remember him? Son of God, prince of peace, lord of all a guy that has all the power, decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Now, you have to understand that God has a little bit of a problem here because he has predicted from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2, that his son, his Messiah, would be born in Bethlehem. The trouble is, the person that he's chosen to be the mother of his son, the, the, the person that's going to bring this Messiah into the world, lives in Nazareth. And she's currently in Nazareth, and she's about to pop. So God has, he could could get Mary and Joseph to to Bethlehem a few different ways. He could appear and say, Mary and Joseph, go to Bethlehem. They could say, yes, sir, and they could simply go to Bethlehem because they have to be born there. But God, I love the way God, God does things many times with a flourish. He does some subtle creative things in the background that lets people know, hmm, that was really sneaky. God, is, he, he sneaks these things in. He has a point that he wants to make. Because they're living in a society where there's this emperor, this dictator, that is ruling from the top down. He is seeking to exert control over his empire by having a census taken. You take a census in order to make sure everybody's paying their taxes and paying enough taxes. Everybody's available for military service. He is exerting control over his empire by saying, let's take a census. God chooses to use this power move 
by this guy that says he's the son of God and he's the savior of all to use that power move to show that that's really not the way that you change the world. Behind the scenes, see, we have the idea many times that if we could just get the right person in office, if we could get the right laws passed, if we could get the right people in power, that we could change this world. In the Christmas story, God tells us that's really not the way that I do things. We had a guy that was in power, and because of his decree, I'm going to get my deliverer, my way of doing things, which is humility. Did I ever mention I'll be so glad when we're in our own building? No, that's, that's actually a cool thing. Some of you, it wakes you up during the sermon every Sunday. Oh, amen! That's what some of you do. So. God is using this power move to, to bring his humble servant in, and secretly behind the scenes without anybody knowing, he's changing the world. So this Roman Empire, Emperor Augustus, he says, we're going to take this census throughout the Roman Empire. This was, first, this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now I have to stop here. And for a while, some of you are going to be bored to tears. Some of you are thinking, I'm already bored to tears. It won't be any different. But it's very important. In fact, we just finished a series where we talked about that the starting point for our faith isn't a Bible story. It isn't even necessarily because the Bible says so. The starting point of our faith is an event in history where Jesus actually rose from the dead. But here we have an event. We don't believe that this is just a nice little Christmas thing. We believe that God chose to come into this world and to become like us, to become one of us. We believe it's an actual historical event. Well, that's important to know, then, if what we're reading is historically accurate. When Luke sat down to write the book of Luke, he said, I investigated everything very carefully. I wanted to write an orderly account. This is a, a, the first volume of a two-volume set. Luke wrote Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts. Throughout Luke and the book of Acts, we have an impeccable recording of actual history that can be corroborated by many, many, many sources. Luke is a first-rate historian. Even secular historians will agree. However, this particular verse was used for years and years, and it still is used by people who would call themselves atheists, to say, here's a point where Luke is incorrect. Therefore, everything that Luke says must be also incorrect. This is legend. This is written much much, much later after the actual events to where they're simply guessing at the time and they're incorrect. Because you understand that Jesus was not born. Uh, for, for example, we, G, when Jesus came to, to the earth, years and years and years later, the Christian monks of the time made up the Gregorian calendar and they divided our time into B.C., which means what? And A.D., which means what? No, it doesn't mean after death. If it means after death, there's about 33 years in between that we don't have nothing. It's like before Christ, after death, and we don't have anything here. What does A.D. stand for? After dinosaurs. Well, that's not right, but that's a good guess. Yeah, but give me the Latin. <laughs> what? Anno Domini means we play dominoes once a year. It's in the Latin. It means in the year of our Lord. Now, but Jesus wasn't, number one, he wasn't born in zero. There is no year zero. It goes from 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. 
But Jesus wasn't born in 1 AD. They got the calendar wrong. Jesus was actually born 6 or 7 BC, possibly as early as 12 BC. How in the world could he be born 6 or 7 BC? But here's, here's the issue, and I'll try to go through this as quickly as possible, but there's a reason I'm telling you. Luke says that this census, at the time that Jesus was born, it says this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. The rub is that Jesus was born 6 or 7 BC. We know that he was born in the time of Herod the Great. Herod the Great died in 4 BC. Jesus cannot be born after 4 BC because Herod was alive, very much alive, when Jesus was born, and he died in 4 BC. Also, the problem is the record that we have, it comes from a Jewish historian named Josephus that says that Quirinius was the governor of Syria in 6 AD. Well, that creates a problem because if Quirinius was the governor of Syria in 6 AD and Herod the Great died in 4 BC and Jesus was born before Herod the Great died, then Luke must have gotten his history incorrect. But Luke did not get his history incorrect. Now, let me say this in defense of Luke. And the reason I say these things is because I want you to know, because a lot of people have the idea that either God sort of dropped these books down out of heaven onto these people or God somehow dictated it to them. No, they're human beings. Human beings could make errors. But it's interesting that Luke is so meticulous, and he's been proven right over and over and over again. If we can believe him with his actual history, why should we disbelieve him when he says, and oh, by the way, a virgin had a child. And oh, by the way, that child eventually was killed. And oh, by the way, he was actually raised from the dead. And we saw him. Time and time again, they, the, the writers of the four Gospels say, talk about, we saw him. We felt him. We heard him talk. We could see him. It's an actual historical account. But here, let me give you this one just for you history buffs. In Luke chapter 3, verse 1, Luke says this, and this for years was debated. It says, it was now the 15th year of the reign. Go ahead to that next slide. It was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. See, Luke is giving you the history. This is something, by the way, because so many people say these things became legend and became myth. These are so many details. When you read ancient legends and myth, these things aren't in there. The Roman emperor, Pontius Pilate, was governed, governed over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Iturea and Trachonitis. And Lysanias was ruler over Abilene. That's in Texas, I think. But the people for years and years said that Luke could not possibly be right because the only record we have of Lysanias being in charge of Abilene was in 50 B.C. Now, it may be hard for you to believe, but people even thousands of years ago named, they didn't decide we have to name our child something that nobody else has ever been named. For example, we've had at least a couple presidents in the last 20 years named George. So they, for years, they said Luke got that wrong. However, I think it was around 2004, there was a discovery of a temple that has multiple inscriptions telling of the acts of Lysanias, who was indeed the tetrarch of Abila, and Luke was vindicated. Over and over and over, anytime people thought Luke was wrong, archaeology or other historical things have vindicated Luke. And here's another thing. This is just for you history buffs. Because believe it or not, you know, I have these church nerd type people. Jeremy's one of them. Jeremy is always coming up and asking me. I have some great links for you, by the way, Jeremy. I found this week. 
on corroborating the history of the book of Acts and the archaeological uh, evidence for the Gospels. I know some of you are like, what? You're making me puke here. No, it's an amazing thing to talk about. But look here, Acts chapter 5, verse 37. Remember, Luke wrote the book of Acts too. And in Acts chapter 5, he's telling the story of Gamaliel. Gamaliel is recounting a history. After, after him, at the time of the census... There was Judas of Galilee. He got people to follow him, but he was killed too, and all his followers were scattered. This is what Josephus records, that in 6 AD, when Quirinius was governor of Syria, there was another census that was taken, and there was an uprising. The people said, we're had enough with this taxes, and they revolted. So Josephus records that particular census. He does not record the other census. But if Luke is writing to convince people of the validity of the story of Jesus, how stupid would he be if he's aware that there was a census in 6 AD to try to slip something past people that are, these are contemporaries. They, this is recent history. It'd be like me talking about the coup that we had in 1976 and somebody overtook the presidency and just tried to slip that past you. you now some of you kids, they don't teach anything in school. You'd say, really? That's really cool. No, but the rest of us, you would say, well, there wasn't a coup in 1970 because I, I couldn't slip that past you. Well, Luke is aware of the census that took place in 6 AD. On top of that, there's been a discovery of a coin. The, the Greek word that Luke uses for him being governor of Syria is something that's pronounced sort of like hergameos. I don't know exactly how to say it. Hergameos. But it could also be used of a military leader or a military ruler. Well, Quirinius, who was actually the governor of Syria in 6 AD, was in Syria at the time of Jesus, 6, 7, 8 BC, as a military leader, and a coin has actually been discovered with his inscription that calls him the proconsul of Syria. So Luke knew, and that's why he says, this was the first census that was taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. This isn't the one where there was a revolt. It was the one before. Luke is once again vindicated in his history. The reason I say all that, he goes to such trouble to make sure the smallest details of history, that when he says, this baby came into the world and he was born of a virgin supernaturally. There's something special about this kid. We have no reason to doubt him there because his history is impeccable. Okay, those of you that hate history, wake back up. Here we go. And because, oh, all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. And he traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. Once again, God using the power move of Augustus to move the way he changes the world into position. And he took with him Mary, his fiancée. Now Mary, Joseph probably originally had land in Bethlehem. He probably moved to Nazareth to do some carpentry or mason work. He fell in love with this beautiful girl, Mary. He got down on one knee. He had him playing, I wish I want to marry you in the background. He gave her a ring. They're, getting, they're engaged. They're ready to go. And all of a sudden, Mary comes and says, Oh, by the way, Joseph, <laughs> I'm pregnant. Oh, but don't worry, it was God. I mean, come on, guys, can you imagine just getting engaged to a girl? And she says, uh, Joseph, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it was actually God that did it. Come on. An angel had to, actually, had to appear to him. I can imagine how mad jo Joseph was. But he took Mary with him. A lot of people said Joseph wouldn't have needed 
Once again, skeptics will say there was no reason for Mary to go. Joseph wouldn't have taken her with him. But she's in a town where all the Jewish ladies are looking sideways at her and talking amongst themselves as she goes down the street. She's not married, and she's about to pop with a baby. I can imagine Mary saying to Joseph, you're not leaving me here. I'm going with you. It's a very good reason for her to take, him to take her with him. Okay, and while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her first child, a son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth, laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. Once again, we get the picture normally that there was no room for them in the inn. We always hear that in the Christmas story. You know, I always had the picture, they come in, it's a busy time. Mary says to Joseph, I told you we shouldn't travel at Christmas time. You can never get a room. So, but actually the word, it was probably a, a, a home of one of their relatives. And it was probably just a guest room, but there wasn't any room for them because several people were there. And Mary's about to have a baby. You know, why don't you guys go out back in the barn or maybe even be in a cave? And so here is the king of all kings. Here is the, the person that is going to be the ruler of Israel. From the very beginning, the story has always been the same. Jesus doesn't come as a regal ruler that's passing out laws from on high, pontificating and telling people what they need to do. No, he comes as a lowly servant. He comes in humility. He comes to serve and to love and to feel what we feel, to live among the people. That's the way that God has always chosen to change the world. You have to change the hearts of people. Creating laws, getting the right people in office, maybe, maybe not. But here's God's way from the very beginning that I'm going to change this world is I'm going to become one of you. Now, um, I want to go to the story that happens right after they were born. Most people stop reading here, but let's go on. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus or Hebrew, Yeshua, or Joshua. Joshua was, was actually the fourth most popular name in uh, Israel at that time. I don't know how people know if, the, if like Cosmopolitan was still back then and they had like the most popular names of 6 BC, I don't know. But they say Yeshua or Joshua, which simply means God saves or God will save. And it's, I love it that they named Jesus because the, in the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, Isaiah predicts that there will be nothing special about this Savior. As he walks down the street, you won't say, well, now there goes the superhero right there. I bet he's the one that's going to save us. No, the Old Testament says you really won't notice he'll be plain. He'll be just like everybody else. His name wasn't even special. It's just Joshua. God will save. There's all kinds of Joshuas. He's one of you. Eight days later, he was named Jesus. Jesus, of course, is the Greek rendering of Joshua, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses, after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem, to the temple, to present him to the Lord. Now, here's how we know, by the way, that Jesus was not wealthy, that his parents weren't wealthy. Let me show you. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Side note, those of you that come down and work at Stonebrook Center, we have two young pigeons that are in there, and they've given birth to a newborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and I'm going to sacrifice them, though, if they don't, 
if something doesn't happen soon. But we have two young pigeons living in Stonebrook Center. So, but in the, in the, in the law, it, when you had a son, after 40 days you have to present him in the temple, and you had to make a sacrifice. And you were required to give a newborn lamb to be sacrificed. But then the, the law says, if you can't afford that, you can give two pigeons. It's like run down to Central Park, grab some birds, and come back here. But here's where we see that Mary and Joseph couldn't afford the lamb. They're poor, two young pigeons. I can see you're riveted with interest at that detail. Here's another example, by the way, of, and the, the reason I do this is because I am a skeptic. I really am. I still struggle weekly, not daily, I used to struggle daily. I still struggle weekly with the concept of God. I struggle with this concept that God came to earth as a baby, came to earth as a human being, and he lived like I did, and then he died, and then he rose again. Come on. I struggle with it. So I look at these details, and I've read ancient myths. I've read other writings, and these do not read like myths. The details are too consistent. That's why I point them out. It's helping me. It's good that your pastor actually believes in God. Don't you think? That's like a qualification. So, uh, verse 25. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous, devout. He was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come rescue Israel. Holy Spirit was on him. And, and had, God had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, this is what Simeon sees Jesus. He's been waiting. God has said, you're not going to die until you see the Savior. So he's hanging out. He's old. He's like, tick-tock, God, I'm about to die here. So all of a sudden, this baby shows up, and God says, he's the one. Nothing special about him, but he's the one. So he picks him up, and he says, the sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised, because I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared. Now listen, this is revolutionary. All these words aren't by chance for all people. Mary, Joseph, and the rest of the Jewish people thought that Jesus was the Messiah that was going to save Israel. From the very start, God was saying, no, it's for everyone. And then he says this. This is the purpose of Jesus coming. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He's the glory of your people, Israel. But that's what Jesus is. Before Jesus, and I say this all the time, I may sound like a broken record, but I really want us to get it. Before Jesus came, you can read the Old Testament until your eyeballs fall out, and you'll never know God. Because the Apostle John said, before Jesus, nobody had seen him. Nobody had understood God, but he has revealed him to us. At his birth, this man prophesies, speaking by the Spirit of God, and says, he is a light, this baby, the reason this baby is here is to reveal God. If you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks, you look at what Jesus thinks. If you want to know what God would do, look at what Jesus does. You know what God would say? Look at what Jesus says. He is the visible image of the invisible God. The reason his birth is so important is we now have a living, breathing human being, the message of God, God in a bod. We call it the incarnation. Like, in, you, like uh, let's see, you know what con carne means? Like you eat chili con carne? What's that mean? Chili with meat. Incarnation. 
Jesus is God with meat. <laughs> That's what he is. He's God in a bod, something we can see and feel and hear, something we can, we, can, we can hear the words he says, we can see the look in his eyes, and he can feel what we feel. And we'll end with this. In, this is the whole entire purpose, and this is the one thing I want you to remember as you go through the rest of your Christmas, because I know we've got lots of Christmas going on. You have family coming in that you haven't seen in years, and you wish they would never come again. You have that kind of family. You are going to open presents. You're going to spend way too much money. Your kids are going to be excited for five minutes, and then they're going to ask why you didn't get them an iPad. That's just what's going to happen over the next few days. It's going to be exciting. It's fun. It's the American way. I'm not saying you have to go around with a Jesus shirt, or you even have to tie up your children and make them listen to Luke chapter 2 like I did. There's the young pigeons going across, I think, right there. But here is the, is the purpose, is what I want you to remember about Jesus. Isaiah said it this way. He said, all right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. Would you say those four words with me together? God is with us. It's the difference in Christianity and every other religion. It's the difference in relationship and religion is that God didn't send us a memo. He didn't send us an email. He didn't say, I, sent, I give you a book, I sent you prophets, that's good enough. No, words on pages were not what God desired between us and him. He wanted us to be able to see him firsthand, face to face. The coming of Jesus is, is mirrored from the Garden of Eden where the very first thing that Adam saw when he opened his eyes, <laughs> it makes me cry every time I think about that, is God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The very first thing Adam saw was the face of God. That God said, it's been too long. We need restoration of this relationship. Let me come down there and be with you where you can look in my eyes and you can see me, you can hear me, and I'm going to give everything I have for you and then for the rest of eternity, and even now, during this Christmas season, when you are so uh, stressed out over all the things that are going on, or at Christmas, Christmas time is a time where, you know, we talk about God being with us. It's, it's, it's a horrible time for some people because they recognize that there are some people that were with us last Christmas that aren't with us this Christmas. And it can be a time of very painful memories. But no, whatever it is you're going through, whatever it is you've been through, whatever thing that you thought was supposed to work and didn't work, whatever relationship, whatever job, whatever endeavor, it's just not working out. It's a time to stop and reflect and say, okay, what is God's way of changing the world? What is God's way of changing me? It's he comes and he's with us. And if we'll choose to believe that, if we'll choose to partner with that and say, okay, God, I... I accept that. You came for me. You're with me. I'm going to choose to be with you. Something happens on the inside. We are changed. Our families change. Our Christmas is changed. And ultimately, it's how the world gets changed through the humility, love, and service of Jesus through us. So I, I'm going to pray for us. Um, before you leave, if you need somebody to pray with you a little more specifically, you may be at that point where you want to talk to somebody about uh, doing what Jeremy said, where he said, I, I accepted Jesus. Or you may just need to pray for something concerning your family or marriage, finances, whatever. Over here to the left, we have 
a couple of people, Courtney and Eric, that will be over there and available to pray for you. But I'm just going to pray in general here. But if you'd like to pray with someone further, they're available. Thanks for hanging out with us today, by the way. I know I went a little bit long. but This is my last shot at you for this year. No service next week. We'll see you in January. Father, we love you so very much. I, I love this time of year, Lord. I know it's not actually the time that Jesus was born, but I really don't care. And I know that you don't care. The fact is you came to be with us. And I continue, <coughs> continue to think that's amazing. Because day after day after day, when it looks like things aren't working or it looks like I'm alone, you remind me, no, no, I'm working behind the scenes. I'm getting things done. And time and time and time again, you've come through for me and you've been ever with me my entire life. And I thank you that you're with those that are here, sir. I ask that you uh, remind them of who you are all during this Christmas celebration and the holiday season that we're going through. And we just give you the glory for it because you're the... It sounds so trite, Lord, to say you're the reason for the season, but you're the reason for everything. You're the reason we even have breath, and you're the reason that we have a relationship with our Father, sir. We love you, my Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for hanging out. Have yourself a merry little Christmas, and we'll see you next year.